Good morning. My name is Michael McCusker. Two days ago, this past Tuesday, February 14th, the state of Oregon blew out the candles of its 164th birthday cake. Underneath the white frosting just might have been hidden a chocolate cake. Such is Oregon's publicly displayed history and its initial goal to be an all-white state. Perhaps the greatest and essentially grievous intention among too many Americans is that the USA is and should be Northern European in coloration, preferably of Anglo-Saxon heritage, e pluribus unum to the contrary. Whiteness as racial purity and national supremacy. Every American president but one, number 44, Barack Obama, has been a white male. Only one vice president has been both non-white and a woman. President's Day, which I call Millard Fillmore Day, this 23rd year of the new millennium, is this upcoming Monday, February 20th, two days before George Washington, the father of the USA's birthday. I start today's program in honor of the 33rd state of the USA, our own organic Oregon, and its dark history of black bias this third week of annual Black History Month. It is by Ralph Friedman from his book, this side of Oregon, a chapter in Ebony, with a quote by T.W. Davenport. The people of Oregon were far more in danger of the introduction of slavery among them than the people of Kansas were at any time. As far back as 1840, according to the Niles Register, the national newspaper of its day, a memorial was introduced in the United States Senate from citizens of Kentucky asking grants of land in Oregon and permission to take their Negroes with them, quote, unquote. The memorial was tabled, and this group of Kentuckians did not come to Oregon. The Kentuckians may have been the first whose motive for wanting to move to Oregon was strongly tied to the issues of slavery and attitudes towards black people. This motivation was a powerful force in the Western movement and has too readily been ignored by historians. Many who favored slavery masked their racial economic move with the popular slogan of manifest destiny. Great Britain's joint claim to the Oregon country was assailed by cries of patriotism. But to these partisans, the real issue was slavery which Great Britain would not permit. In the summing up, most of the comers to Oregon were less pro-slavery than anti-Negro. The result was a pragmatic and immoral compromise. There was no John Brown in Oregon. During the early wagon train years, the single highest percentage of settlers came from Missouri. A goodly number of these were originally from slave states, and they brought their prejudices with them, 
and ambient envy of slave owners for possessing what they could not afford and or a cruel bitterness toward bondaged blacks whose cheap labor provided the large competitive edge the slave owners had over small farmers whose land was not often of equal quality. Until statehood, at least, most of the arrivals in Oregon came from the Middle West, where in states such as Illinois, Indiana, and Iowa, there had been fierce battles over exclusion provisions and laws, and where, as was to be the case in Oregon, the Negro question, quote-unquote, was the most burning issue. There was no political apparatus of any kind in the Pacific Northwest in 1840 when Kentuckians wanted to introduce black slavery. If there had been, it is likely that the taking of slaves to the new country would have been strenuously opposed. The Organic Act of 1843, written by the founders of the provisional government, included a provision of the Ordinance of 1787, which stated, quote, There shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in the said territory, otherwise for the punishment of crime, whereof the party shall have been only convicted, which anticipated the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution in 1865 which abolished slavery in the USA. The Great Migration of 1843, with its approximately 900 immigrants, immediately tripled the non-Indian population of the Oregon country and altered its political complexion and governing personnel. In the first election of the provisional government held in May 1844, the emigrants of 1843 decisively dominated. Only two members of the earlier administration were elected to the Legislative Committee, the first law-making body ever chosen by regular election in Oregon. Among the six newcomers were two virulent racists. An enactment written by the Legislative Committee not long after its election was to be the erratic parent of all laws regarding blacks and slavery. It decreed that persons who had brought slaves into Oregon should send them back, or at least out of the country, within three years, but there were no penalties for those who did not. Free Negroes had to leave within two years, and those who did not would be flogged by the constable, and as long as they stayed in defiance of the law, they would be flogged every six months. This legislation offended both the sensibilities of persons opposed to flogging and the determination of those who wanted to immediately rid the territory of blacks. In December that year, 1849, therefore, the law was amended to delete flogging. In its stead was placed a provision that free Negroes who did not leave voluntarily would be arrested and tried and if convicted, offered for hire to, quote, the person who will obligate himself to remove such Negro or mulatto from the country for the shortest term of service, unquote. 
but the amendment was still displeasing to all parties, and in 1845, the entire law was repealed. The compromise legislation of 1844 would, though, return again and again to vex the white pioneers of Oregon, whose primary interest for the majority was that they live in harmony and establish a state. An articulate Missourian and the leader of the 1843 migration, Peter Burnett, was the driving force of the anti-slavery pro-exclusion laws. In his memoirs, he sought to defend his actions by explaining that he had initiated the legislation because of a deep-seated animosity towards slavery. But his prior statements and actions belie the humanitarian image he sought for himself as an old man. In a letter to the Provisional Council, written in December 1844, the same month the exclusion law was changed from flogging to temporary servitude, Burnett's pragmatism comes through clearly. Quote, the object is to keep clear of that most troublesome class of population. We are in a new world under most favorable circumstances, and we wish to avoid most of those evils that have so much afflicted the United States and other countries, unquote. Exclusion legislation was the reply of white settlers to the question of black emigration. Negroes became the double scapegoat of the inherent conflict between the native Indians and the usurping white settlers. They were blamed on one hand for arousing Indian wrath against the whites by feuding with the Indians, who resented black intrusion also, and on the other hand, for conspiring with Indians to wage war against the new settlers. There was also, in motivating the exclusion legislation, the fear that Negroes would marry white women and, quote, mongrelize, unquote, the population, in addition to befouling the flowerhood, and that is also a quote, of white maidens. It was a feeling that ran at just subsurface current throughout the, at least the first few decades of Oregon white settlement after 1843, and sometimes it surfaced rather boldly. One need not ask why Indian exclusion laws were not adopted. Obviously, there were too many Indians. Their form of exclusion was later made manifest in reservations. By the close of 1844, there were both slaves and free Negroes in Oregon, but their combined numbers was few. Although the 1850 census listed 207 Negroes, Jesse Douglas, a careful researcher, estimated there were only about 55. Famous mountain man Joseph L. Meek, who was born on February 9, 1810, and became U.S. Marshal for the Oregon Territory, took the census in three counties in 1850 and indiscriminately listed as Negroes 114 Indians and part Indians and 38 Hawaiians, a demographic counting which either tells something of Meek's powers of perception or of his biases. 
He was later a forceful influence for bringing Oregon into the Union as a free state in 1859. Meek died in 1875. The few Negroes, however, were enough to worry the majority of white settlers who believed that to lower the exclusion bars was to have Oregon infested by a people depicted by the vilest of stereotypes. No Oregon legislature ever memorialized Congress to give government land available to whites to a black. Indeed, it was under the insistent prodding from territorial delegate Samuel R. Thurston that Congress wrote the Oregon Donation Land Act of 1850 to exclude two immigrant groups unwelcome to the white settlers, the Kanakas, or Native Hawaiians, who had been in Oregon since Fort Astor days, and blacks of any discernible genetic proportion. Full Indians were also out in the cold, but half-Indian males were in, probably because there were so many of them from the marriages or other cohabitative arrangements between early white settlers and Indian women. As with the lawmakers of 1844, Thurston, the territorial delegate, had bad dreams about the Hawaiian Kanakas and Negroes uniting with the Indians to wage war with the whites. One wonders whether the august lawmakers thought the Kanakas would have had the right, which, in any case, they did not exercise, to bar Caucasian white missionaries from their sunny Hawaiian shores. The Organic Act of 1845, passed by the Provisional Legislature, forever prohibited slavery, but it did little to silence the increasingly pro-slavery sentiment in Oregon and did nothing to liberate the slaves already here. Slaves and free blacks continued to trickle into Oregon, but in such small numbers as to make the issue moot in some. By 1860, a year after statehood, there were only 128 blacks in the state, an increase of only 73 since 1850. Yet the Negro question, and that's in quotes, remained high and hot on Oregon's agenda. At its first session in 1849, the territorial legislature, with a significant representation of Southern Democrats, voted overwhelmingly to renew the exclusion policy. In 1854, the territorial legislature, through an oversight, repealed the exclusion law, and in 1855 and 1856, bills prohibiting blacks from entering Oregon were handily defeated. The issue would be resolved by the electorate. In 1856, the Republican Party was organized in Oregon and the following year held a territorial convention. With word the new party was opposed to slavery, the pro-slavers unloaded all the abuse they could muster against the Republicans. No one truly wanted to speak for equal rights for black people. When the Free State Republican Party was organized by anti-slavery forces, it boasted that a free state was the best and only means of securing it for the white race. And that's a quote.
it was on the slavery issue, too. The Democratic Party split into two factions, with the Free Staters in the minority. All of Oregon became a furious battleground. As political tensions mounted, so did personal feelings sensitize and polarize. Long friendships were broken. Marriages were divided. Family members turned against each other. Neighbors warred, and communities were as cleft as though combat was physical. As early as August 20th, 1849, a bill was offered to the first territorial legislative assembly proposing, quote, to take the expression of the people for and against a convention to form a state government, unquote. It was tabled as later were similar measures. But in 1854, the electorate did vote in a referendum to have a state constitutional convention. The proposal was overwhelmingly voted down. The next referendum, in 1855, showed the vote closer. It was so close in 1856 that the referendum supporters tried again in June 1857. This time, the affirmative vote won. Delegates to the convention were also elected at this balloting. It was the slavery issue which prompted the electorate to endorse the convention proposal by a lopsided vote of 7,617 to 1,679. The pro-slavers were now confident they could legally establish slavery. The anti-slavery forces, less vociferous than their opponents, were afraid that the incoming presidential administration of James Buchanan would force slavery upon the territories. There was further impetus added to the pro-constitutional sentiment when the U.S. Supreme Court, in the celebrated case of Dred Scott versus Sanford, ruled on March 6, 1857, that only a sovereign state had the power to prohibit slavery. Now the fat was in the fire. The headstrong Oregonians would make up their own mind. Those who favored slavery talked loud and made a great deal of noise during the storm which swept to the Oregon Territory. One of the leading Democrats not only supported the cheap labor of slavery to develop the territory, but also avoid the evils of race equality, quote-unquote. The Constitutional Convention, with its 60 elected delegates, met on August 17, 1857, and continued deliberations until September 18th. Much of the debate dealt with the matters of slavery and exclusion of free blacks. For all their arguments on the slavery and exclusion issues, the delegates could have saved their breath. Even before the convention was gaveled to order, it was a foregone conclusion that the issues would be passed on to the electorate. Slavery in particular was too hot a potato for the delegates. Some anti-slavery men had been threatened with harsh reprisal if the Constitution worked out by the delegates prohibited black bondage. But the delegates did, in Article 2, Section 6, deny the vote to several racial groups. Quote, no Negro, Chinaman, or mulatto shall have the right of suffrage, unquote. 
women were barred by Article 2, Section 3, which limited the vote to white males who met elementary qualifications. The completed Constitution was adopted by a delegate vote of 34 to 11, with 15 absent or not voting. The next step was to present the document and the burning issues to the voters at the election of November 9th. Three questions were put on the ballot. First, do you vote for the Constitution? The affirmative won 7,195 to 3,215. Second, do you vote for slavery in Oregon? The negative prevailed 7,727 to 2,645. Third, do you vote for free Negroes in Oregon? The negative vote was overwhelming, 8,640 to 1,081. In the statistical comparison, the voters approved statehood by 2 to 1, turned down slavery almost 3 to 1, and voted for exclusion by 8 to 1. The vote to keep blacks out was larger than the vote to prohibit slavery. Twice as many people approved of slavery than those who would permit free blacks into the state. Oregon voted for exclusion by a larger proportion of votes than any other state where the issue was decided by the electorate. The Exclusion Act became Article 1, Section 35 of the Oregon Constitution. It read, quote, no free Negro or mulatto not residing in this state at the time of the adoption of this Constitution shall come or reside or be within this state or hold any real estate or make any contracts or maintain any suit therein. And the Legislative Assembly shall provide by penal laws for the removal by public officers of all such Negroes and mulattoes and for their effectual exclusion from the state and for the punishment of persons who shall bring them into the state or employ or harbor them. Quote, unquote. Congress delayed admission of Oregon to this sisterhood of states for more than a year while the national lawmakers pondered the real intention of Oregonians. They had voted themselves as an anti-slavery state, but pro-slavery sentiment was so powerful and apparent that many in Congress feared Oregon would send to Washington men who would add strength to the backers of slavery in both houses. The free staters in Congress must have wondered about a people who barred slavery and yet chose as governor a pro-slaver and whose legislature elected as the first U.S. senators two ardent advocates of slavery and secession. The Oregon admission bill squirmed through the Senate, and on February 12, 1859, which was the natal day of the next president, Abraham Lincoln, who was elected the following year, passed the House by a vote of 113 to 103. It was a close call. There had been stout opposition from suspicious abolitionists. On February 14th, President Buchanan affixed his signature to the bill, and Oregon changed from territory to state. 
No other free state with a Negro exclusion provision in its original constitution was ever admitted to the Union. The Oregon electorate at the national election in November 1860 elected Lincoln by 270 votes out of 14,761 cast. Oregon gave John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky the nominee of Oregon Democrats, who was an advocate of a federal slave code for the national territories and a champion of secession, a higher percentage of the vote than any other northern state. Breckinridge's running mate was Joseph Lane of Oregon, a hardcore pro-slaver and states writer. During the Civil War, there were charges that Lane conspired to set up a Pacific Republic, a pro-slavery dream, which barely got beyond the fantasy sage. To make certain that their true feelings regarding racism were fully understood, the 1862 Oregon legislature passed a law prohibiting marriages between a white person and one having Negro or Mongolian blood, quote-unquote, and declaring children of such marriages to be illegitimate. It took a long time for Oregon to discard its racist laws. It was not until 1916 that the state legislature proposed the repeal of the exclusion law, Article 1, Section 35, to the citizenry. By a vote of 100,701 to 100,027, the people rejected the proposal and the extinct law. Blacks quietly and in small numbers continued to come into the state, and a few were even voting, remained in the Constitution. Ten years later, the legislature again tried for its repeal. And this time, the people responded favorably, but almost 65,000 voted to keep blacks from entering Oregon. Not until 1927 was Article 2, Section 6, denying suffrage to blacks and Chinese, repealed by a vote of 69,373 to 41,887, which could give the foes of bigotry little comfort. In die-hard Jackson County, almost 46% of the voters turned down repeal. It took until 1959, Oregon's centennial as the 33rd state, for the legislature to completely change intermarriage laws. Only then were the offspring of mixed marriages deemed legitimate. Chapter in Ebony by Ralph Friedman from his book, The Side of Oregon. The late Ralph Friedman wrote quite a few books about Oregon with photographs by his now also deceased wife, Phoebe, who was for many years Oregon chapter president of Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. This is Michael McCusker. Dylan Hauser-Schalk is engineer of this program. It seems as though Oregon's liquor gods have been outed and uncorked for purloining rare and expensive booze for personal use and profit, which must certainly have dried up their celebrations of Oregon's birthday, 
otherwise known to the rest of the world as Valentine's Day, in honor to a martyr who was himself fed to the lions for religious crimes against the state. And an eloquent parting thought by the venerable George F. Will, journalist extraordinaire, quote, frail humans, fallen creatures in a broken world, rarely approach perfection in any endeavor, unquote. And happy birthday to Liam Dunn, who shares Oregon's natal day.